This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. If you uh, frequent farmer's markets, the organic food aisle at the grocery store, or one of the many farm-to-table restaurants, you might think that it's a great time in the history for healthy food. However, we're also consuming record amounts of processed, high-calorie, high-sugar, and salt, as well as low-nutrition foods, which makes us obese and exacerbates health problems like diabetes and heart disease. A new book examines this paradox, how it is our diets are getting healthier and less healthy at the same time. The author, food writer and food historian B. Wilson, takes a look at the food industry, including why companies aren't held more accountable for selling unhealthy products to the public. The book is titled The Way We Eat Now, How the Food Revolution Has Transformed Our Lives, Our Bodies, and Our World. And a pleasure to have her joining us right now. B, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. So how much has the, the food industry realistically changed and as well changed consumers in your mind in the last decade or so? It's changed hugely over the past five years, 10 years, 50 years. If you think the way our grandparents' generation would have eaten and drunk, I mean, water was the normal drink. People had regular meals. There weren't many snacks between meals. Now there are so many snacks, it's almost as if, well, between meals are taking up more of our day than meals. Um, And some people are obsessing more about the nutritional content of their post-gym protein bar than they are about what they're having for dinner. Almost everything has changed, how we eat, what we eat. Well, right. And if you're old enough to remember the days of the three square meals, those have to a degree gone by the wayside because we're, we're now thinking about eating in smaller uh, increments and and eating more times over the course of the day. At least that's that's talked about more these days. Exactly. And it's partly that the way we eat has this intricate relationship with the way we live. Um, you, so many of us say, we've been saying for decades we're too busy to cook. Right. But one of the really new things now is people saying they're too busy to eat, which is hmm. really bizarre and strange. You look at these new drinks called things like Soylent, where people think they don't have time to sit and actually chew and swallow, so they're going to swallow some kind of beige liquid instead. (laughs) And I'm not knocking it. I interviewed some really intelligent people for the book who said, no, it works for them. If you look at what's actually sold as food that's affordable, it's so greasy and unhealthy that they would rather drink one of these liquids and then maybe cook themselves a nice home-cooked dinner in the evening. But to me, that's a sign of how radically food has failed in its job, which is should be both to nourish us and give us pleasure. And these days, it seems like it doesn't do a very good job of either. But at the outset of the of the book that you wrote, you even take a, the unique task about grapes and, and how grapes have changed over the last grapes, several years. Exactly. Grapes have changed hugely. And I, I do then end by saying grapes are actually the least of our worries. I'm not saying right. stop eating grapes by any means. Grapes are still fruit. Grapes are still far more healthful than 90% of what's being sold as food. But it's just, you look at grapes and you think, well, they're very ancient and unchanging. And the ancient Romans had grapes. They've been in wine production for centuries. But if you look at what's sold as grapes, they're completely different from what grapes were in the past. We used to have grapes that had seeds in, whereas now the seedless grape varieties have been around for a long time, but they weren't normal. Whereas now, you know, good luck with, I'm not saying we necessarily want grapes that have seeds in, but the seeds had nutrients. Whereas now, if you get a bunch of white seedless grapes in the supermarket, 
it doesn't have the same phytonutrients that you're expecting grapes to have. It doesn't have the health benefits. It's very sweet, like almost everything that we eat. And almost everything about grapes has changed almost without us noticing. We're joined by B. Wilson, who is the author of the book, The Way We Eat Now, How the Food Revolution Has Transformed Our Lives, Our Bodies, and Our World. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, at DanLoney21. The other part to this, as, as all of these changes have occurred in, in how we eat and how much we eat, uh, we have seen the rates of obesity increase here in the U.S., but I would imagine that there is an element of that that also plays out internationally as well. It's hugely a global story. That was the biggest surprise to me when I began doing the research. I'd read so many things and had so many conversations about this is a Western problem, and actually it's no longer a Western problem. It's not just the U.S. On every continent, there's been this common radical set of changes from savory foods to sweet ones, from meals to snacks. Um, and these changes are happening so rapidly in yeah. some countries, such as Brazil and Mexico. You know, the kind of changes that took the U.S. decades to reach that level of obesity and tooth decay and type 2 diabetes, that's now happening in places like Mexico in under a decade. You also have the, the, the revolution that we saw a few decades ago to have more and more packaged and processed foods and, and how that, from a historical perspective, has changed how we eat. It's changed hugely. And as with everything, it's kind of a question of ratio. So if you look at um, ultra-processed foods, which is a technical term, meaning something which is there's processed foods, which might be something like a can of tomatoes. Well, that's quite a useful kind of processed food. But ultra-processed food would be anything from junk food to sweetened breakfast cereals. Those now make up 50% of what the average person in the U.S. buys as food, which is huge. I mean, so nobody's saying, you know, you're going to die if you occasionally eat a bowl of breakfast cereal, if that gives you pleasure. But when 50% of what people are eating is ultra-processed. Something quite deep has changed, and there's now a whole series of studies done showing that when people eat ultra-processed foods, we overeat because they're very easy to overconsume, and they're also linked with higher levels of diet-related cancer. But we also see a lot of people on the other side of this eating more pork, and, and pork is considered to be, and obviously I know how you prepare it may, may play a role here, but, but pork is seen as, as a healthier option to, to some of the things that people eat, and, and more people are consuming it. Yeah, so this is interesting. This is an, it's a deeply economic story as well. So across the world, I mean, part of what's hard in talking about this is it's Simultaneously, as I see it, a really happy story and a sad story. It really is the best and worst of times. So the reason these changes happen across the world is because when incomes rise, people um, move away from farms into cities. Lots of other things change. They buy electric rice cookers if they're in Asia. They buy microwaves if they're everywhere else. Um, and so, yeah, meat is another huge part of the story. People buy themselves the foods that their grandparents dreamed of eating, which were luxury foods, feast foods. So that essentially means sugar and meat, but also oil. That was a big surprise to me. Like, I knew that our diets were really high in sugar. Yeah. Sometimes people say, what's wrong with modern diets is that they're so low in fat and high in sugar, which is true, except for the low in fat part. It turns out that 
even more than sugar, what we're consuming is loads of cheap vegetable oils. And it's partly because they go into these ultra-processed foods, but it's partly because in places like China, people dreamed of vegetable oil as a kind of luxury. In the old days of famine, you know, fat was literally almost like riches. And then suddenly, incomes go up, the price of oil goes down, it's there in every store, and people almost don't notice that they're just pouring in five times as much oil as people would have done in the past. And it's the same with meat. So pork was something, it's always been a luxury food in China, but only now can people afford to buy as much of it as their heart desires. Has the, the, the move by many millennials here in the United States into cities, talking about you know, what you were mentioning a second ago, how has that impacted the process of eating? Because you would think with a lot of these younger adults living in cities, living on their own for the first time, that their tendency would be to want to go out and, and, and go to their local pub to eat or, you know, the corner restaurant, whatever it might be, instead of staying in their apartment or house in the city and, and cooking their own dinner. And I think one of the saddest things about how we eat today is that eating, which is fundamentally for human beings, should be a really social activity, it's become something quite lonely for so many of us. And it's not that there's anything wrong in eating a meal by yourself. After all, about a third of households in places like the US and UK are single-person households. Um, you can have a delicious meal by yourself. It can be a way of really taking care of yourself at the end of a long working day. But the sad thing is that so often we are just in this kind of little bubble, ordering in something from Uber Eats, staring at a screen, not really giving our meals this kind of social aspect that you're describing of going to a pub, being with friends. Um, and I think that would be a huge loss if we um, lose out on that because food, it feeds a lot more than just our bodies. It's also this sense of its culture, its belonging, its mental health. And I came across a really interesting study which looked at Japanese-American men in California and it looked at their health and their rates of heart disease and some of them had much higher heart disease than others, but it wasn't down to what they eat. It was the extent to which they were still eating in social groups in quite a ritualized way as they had done back in Japan. And I thought that was really telling because our culture is endlessly telling us we're too busy to eat, we're too busy to sit down. And it's also telling us food doesn't matter very much. And none of those things, it turns out, are true. We're joined by B. Wilson, who is the author of the book, The Way We Eat Now, How the Food Revolution Has Transformed Our Lives, Our Bodies, and Our World. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio, B-I-Z radio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at danloney21. You also bring up the fact that there are more people out there today than ever before who are in, trying to inform us with various in, levels of information about food, about what we eat, about dieting, about you know so many different aspects of this industry that it is really, I, I think it has changed the industry in, in a variety of different ways. It's so confusing and it's so polarizing that on the one hand you have these people saying, if you eat a single bite of carbohydrate, your insulin levels will go sky high. And on the other hand, you've got people advocating really purist vegan diets. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being vegan. I'm just saying there's a substrand of yeah. sort of clean eating where people are feeling um, that if they put anything in their body that's not quote-unquote pure, 
that there's something wrong with that. And I, that makes you really sad. It feels like our eating is becoming kind of angry, polarized, quite disordered in some ways. There's a lot of shame and guilt around food. And of course, it's a brilliant marketing device for the food industry, because no matter what worry or concern somebody has, it can be packaged and sold back to us at an inflated price. There's something protein boosted or guilt-free dark chocolate snack or whatever it might be. Um, and it's really hard. I think the thing that's most missing in the way we eat now is that we don't seem to trust our own senses anymore to tell us what to eat. It's as if we don't actually know what food is anymore. B. Wilson, the author of the book, The Way We Eat Now, joining us. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, at DanLoney21. The other interesting part to this whole story is the fact that with some of the ways we eat and the amounts that we eat, uh, I mentioned before about the the potential medical issues, obesity, diabetes, et cetera, but we're also talking about the higher medical costs that are involved, and that's an even larger story that is in play here in the United States right now. That's a huge story. And then another part of the story, which I think doesn't get talked about enough, is how do we talk about people with obesity? I have a section in the book on weight stigma, and it's something we don't examine anything like enough. If you're looking at societies like the U.S. where two-thirds of the adult population is overweight or obese, how is it that we can still be writing such horrible, judgmental newspaper headlines suggesting that people with obesity are lacking in willpower um, when actually, as we've seen, the entire food environment has changed? We're living in a world flooded with sugar, and in some sense, not to be overweight or obese is to react against that environment. So some, one of the many things that I think is wrong with how we eat is that we blame ourselves and our own bodies too much, and we don't look outwards at the environment that made us this way. What do you see as maybe some of the necessary changes that, that need to occur? To, to I mean, there's so many issues that have to be dealt with, but, but if you're able to tackle them one or two at a time, what, what needs yeah. to be approached? It's, it's overwhelming because it's, it's huge. It's everything. Um, as an individual, I have some suggestions at the end. Of, I mean, they're very simple and obvious things in a way, like making time for cooking and especially learning to cook the things that you actually want to eat and reconnecting with your senses. But a lot of this change, in my view, has to happen at a governmental level. And I've taken inspiration from a few places around the world the government of Chile has enacted the most radical food laws the world has ever seen with things like they have banned cartoon characters from boxes of frosted sugary kid cereals because they see that as an incitement to sell sugar. When I heard, first heard this, I thought, that's amazing. But then actually it kind of is an incitement to sell sugar. And they also have these very clear stop signs on certain foods um, that are high in sugar or high in saturated fat. So I think that's one way to go. But the other thing I would love to see more of is food education. And I've been heavily involved in this project in the UK called Taste Ed, where we just go into schools, bring in delicious fresh produce, and just get the kids to interact with the food with all of their senses. And it's just amazing. You meet these kids. I've met 12-year-olds who've never eaten a raw tomato in their lives. So they don't know if they like tomatoes or not. Um, because they've never had the chance to make up their minds. So it's not going to be the whole answer, but I feel like a combination of 
better government regulation of the food supply, education. Um, and I feel like consumers slowly maybe are shifting themselves in a healthier direction. Right. Everett, oh, I'm sorry. Let me go. To the, let me go to the phones here uh, for a question from Everett, who is in Central Florida. Uh, Ever, uh, B, hang on. Everett, go ahead, sir. Thanks, B. B, I've got something. I was traveling internationally ten days at a time with an international company. I'd come home to the United States. I stayed at the office till seven thirty to keep up with work there, and then I came home, and my family's already they already ate. So we came up with this idea called family table time, where we would eat a meal together once a week. And during this meal, we'd have great conversation. And it was one of those things we ate, we cooked together, we ate together, we communicated together. And, and what we did that one night a week transferred to the whole week. And so how important is bringing family dinners back together for children, listening, nutrition, and their parents talking to their children? What do you think? I agree with everything you just said, Everett. I couldn't agree more. And I was a, one of the things I say to people when they say I have no time for family dinner is to suggest exactly what you've done as a family, which is do it once a week or do it twice a week. Because even that one meal, as you say, it has these huge knock-on benefits. A really good shared meal is something transformative, isn't it? It's You're learning how to eat as a child from seeing what your parents eat. But it's also just what you've described so well. It's it's the conversation. It's the sharing of something. There's this old word, commensality, which literally means sitting down at the table together. And that just used to be a fundamental part of how families operated and human societies. And as you've said, it's so hard with modern working structures to make it happen every day. But if you can do it even once a week, well, well done. Good luck to you. Everett, thanks very much for your call. Greatly appreciate it. B, it's a fantastic story that you tell there, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Thank you. B. Wilson, the book, again, is titled The Way We Eat Now, How the Food Revolution Has Transformed Our Lives, Our Bodies, and Our World. It is uh, put out by Basic Books, and it is available in bookstores and online for your purchase now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.